and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. I'm very excited to talk to you today. I am Richard Litauer. Welcome. We also have Amanda Kasari on the podcast, one of our other panelists. Amanda, how are you? I'm doing well today. How are you, Richard? I'm doing good. I just realized I missed out on the like quote that I always have at the beginning of this podcast. I didn't say who we are, where we come from. So I'm just going to skip it. That's never happened before. It's cool. Ben, how are you doing? Ben Nichols. I'm good. But now for that reason, I don't know what I am doing. What am I doing, Richard? You are here on a podcast and we are very excited today to introduce our guest, Aster Numelin Carlberg. Aster, as you may be able to tell, is in Brussels where he lives and works. That's why that siren sounded a bit odd. What's really great about Aster is that he is the ED of OFE, Open Forum Europe. What is Open Forum Europe? That is a very good question that I am not adequately prepared to answer. However, Aster probably is. So Aster, how are you and what is OFE? Thanks, Richard. OFE, it's like I always have to go for like the like three, four different elevator pitches I have, but let's just go for kind of a generic one and then we'll see what questions that will stir up. Uh, So OFE is a think tank. And as you said, based in Brussels. And the reason we're based in Brussels is because the EU headquarters is in Brussels. So that kind of suggests we work with politics and policy. And so why am I here from this podcast? Well, because we work with open technologies and public policy. So you can kind of say, use the open prefix ahead of be it open data, open source, open standards, open science, and where it interacts with public policy and politics. We have been there over the 20 years. We've been active. It's an excellent summation, which I would expect from the executive director, which is what ED stands for. Thanks for asking in the chat, making sure I clarify that. Aster, I hadn't realized that OFE was so old. I mean, old is maybe the wrong term, but it's been around for a while, which is really, really cool. You're recently the ED. You've been there for longer than a few years, but you've been ED for around a year now, if I recall correctly. Well, it's Uh, even less. It's uh, five months. Five months. Well, then congratulations again. Tell me about the size of OFE. So... How many employees would you say you have? Just like any think tank, and this is the secret sauce, even when you look at the really big ones, they look quite big. There are a lot of faces. There are a lot of fellows. There are a lot of affiliates and there are directors and non-executive directors. But in terms of size, we are five to six full-time employees, depending on how you count. And then how we kind of reach impact at a bigger scale than five people normally can. Here's a good thing with working in the kind of open source ecosystem and close to it. We work in a lot of partnerships and collaborations and we give support where we can. We ask for support where we can. But in terms of just organizational size, like many open source organizations in Europe, we are small. I know that you go around and support other people and really interested in community networks. You have a standing call like every two weeks for the community. You've also been very involved personally, Aster, in OSPO++ which is a group of OSPOs that are interested in basically interconnecting and working together at education, uh, universities and governments and the like, which makes a lot of sense that you're here at the side of the table. Now, what's really interesting about Europe and open source is that traditionally tech has been centered in the U.S. for the past 50 years. And that's just probably how it goes. It's kind of weird. But when you think of like big tech, you think of Silicon Valley. However, our government, mean the U.S. government, because I'm American, obviously. Sorry, everyone hasn't had a great track record of being actively involved in, say, open stuff. We're not generally really on the ball in terms of policy coming out of Washington towards open things. But what's interesting is that we're seeing a shift in the EU, where the EU has been actively involved for a long time. GDPR is a really awesome thing that they implemented at scale very well, depending on how you think about well. 
But generally, there is space for, say, a think tank to exist. All of this context is just me trying to build up to talk about OFB being part of a wider movement to understand how openness works in the EU. You released a report a couple of years ago, which I think is probably the crowning achievement of work going on there. Can you talk a bit about the economic impact of open source? Yes, sure. And I can talk a little bit about how that study came to be and why it came to be, because I think it actually lends some interesting insights into the open source ecosystem in Europe and beyond. So yeah, the European Commission, so the executive branch, one can say it's always hard to compare those things exactly with the EU and other since it's not a national government, but the European Commission essentially commissioned a study on the economic impact of open source, both software and hardware, and not just in terms of GDP numbers, but also questions on competitiveness, innovation in the economy, and the autonomy question of having control over your technology stack as a continent or the EU27 countries. I won't bore you with the details, but essentially we bid together with Fraunhofer ISI, which is a research institute in Germany, to conduct this study for the commission. And we were glad that we were awarded the contract from the commission. And then we started the work. In short, let's fast forward to actually the publication. It took a year and a half, a lot of interviews, a lot of economic metric research and a lot of regressions being run at the Technical University of Berlin, where the research leader was based. The conclusion, I don't think this surprises any listeners of this podcast. There's quite the economic impact. It's very present in the economy. And here it should be said, I'll get to the numbers. We really went for a very kind of conservative approach to our estimates. If you added in the economic value of the internet as a part of open source, it would be quite difficult. <laughs> like it gets too big almost. So we used the data that we found the easiest to work with, essentially. There isn't that much data available about open source at a systems level. We can get to that point later because it's an interesting one to kind of unpick. But we used GitHub commit data. So essentially the correlation between GitHub commits as a proxy, again, not a perfect proxy, obviously. There are a bunch of other actual repositories, there are repositories and development platforms, but we didn't have the data for that. So we used this as a proxy and looked at how it affected certain numbers. Without getting too deep into econometric methodology, we essentially saw very strong correlations between investment into the full-time equivalents of developers committing to upstream to open source and GDP growth. If you increase open source activity in the European economy by 10%, you would see an increase of 0.4 to 0.6% of, of our GDP, which is very significant. And also in terms of the investments into open source, in terms of its cost benefit ratio in the economy, it's one to four to one to 10, depending on how you count on capital costs and hardware costs, et cetera. But this is very significant. Let's say open source is a good investment, regardless for the economy. It's definitely something that then justifies a lot more attention from policymakers. And one could also argue that it is very much a green field for policymakers to start really thinking about how to engage with this ecosystem. Because as anyone remembers the first time they started engaging with open source, it's also a world of established norms and cultures. One can't just jump in or just throw money around. And this well came to a lot of our conclusions around, let's say, capacity building in the public sector. Also supporting capacity building in, let's say, traditional industry, how to engage with open source and really building more links. Because at the end of the day, more open source is good for citizens. I would encourage you to actually dive into the numbers. This is great because we haven't had people who have really been on the podcast who have authored this type of report before. 
except perhaps maybe Amanda Brock from Open UK, who's been on. They do some interesting policy work about how open source influences the UK policy. But in terms of like global governments looking at how open source affects everything, right? America, like I said, is still nascent here. We're only just getting to that right now. So I'm really curious, can you give me actual numbers for, say, how much open source influences the European economy? Amanda, maybe you have a better idea for what sort of numbers may be good to ask for at this moment. So I would be super curious, Aster. So I'd love to talk more and like kind of get deeper on the questions that you bring up and on the methods and the methodologies. I did hear you reference the idea of having information that's available to really understand what's happening across the ecosystems. And as you're thinking about policies and recommendations, I'm curious as to like, what information do you feel would help with that? And like, it would help make better decisions about understanding open source from a systems level that you haven't been able to access, but that would be able to make better policy decisions. Okay, so the question where in a way it's like, okay, looking at the social and economic part of the open source stack and really figuring that out, it is open source looking at the size of it and the activity and the rivers of value and just innovation is incredibly understudied from a kind of a social and economic point of view. It's very interesting because if you look at other technologies or modes of innovation, let's say standardization, it is very studied. And it's in fact, I mean, here, of course, you have certain established proxies like patents as this is how you count like patents to this number of patents and this then happens in the economy, etc. This has been worked on for decades, if not more than that. And there's a really big wealth of research and knowledge. What I found it very interesting that it was the European Commission that asked for this study to be done and not the open source ecosystem that came together to figure out and kind of fund this kind of research. I'm saying then by ecosystem here, obviously that's such a broad description, but let's say open source companies that want to market the technology and innovation model that they work with. That part of the like big collective action challenge that open source has solved in, in many ways in terms of what it actually creates. But this part I feel is not solved. There is still not enough young PhDs that have access to exciting data sets to really start researching. It's the, the idea of open data, right? What kind of data is it that they need as much as possible? Then depending on the discipline and depending on the approach, I hope that we will get a lot of insights, not just let's say from like we work with economists, but really starting to look at scale, let's say anthropological studies. There have been some at a relatively small scale, but we need more. We need to challenge the research that's already been done. It is still so underfunded. And for us in terms of data access, we work with GitHub commits, and I know there's an ongoing project internally in GitHub to start releasing more data. We were talking to the team preparing the report, and we said, just release as much as you can. We know people who can do quite interesting stuff with, let's say, economic research, but there are a lot of different disciplines. This is such a broad ecosystem that is just everywhere in society today. We need a lot more eyes and interest. And the best way of getting research done is kind of get the data out there. I guess one of my questions, thinking about getting more data and thinking about the work that you've already done, you co-authored this report with another team of economists who have done really great work, and maybe we should get them on as well to talk about more details of, of what they, they did. Uh, yeah, one shout thing, out to Knut Blind at TU Berlin. Thank you, Knut. One of the things I'm interested in is how can we effectively put pressure on large companies to release more data that talks about open source? 
and talked about the entire ecosystem writ large. So, I mean, I know that you're really interested in open source program offices as vehicles of actually moving industry to work together on various things. I'm curious what perspective you have on how we can best use OSPOs or networks of OSPOs to actually come together to release more data. Do you have any ideas there? I mean, it depends on OSPOs and networks of OSPOs. It depends a little bit on where you see them. So in a way, if you look at public sector or government OSPOs, which is of particular interest to us, even though OSPOs everywhere is usually quite useful in terms of getting more open source activity in a structured way. But if you look at OSPOs in government, an interesting way of considering it, you kind of increase their capacity to also buy open source services and products from companies. Increasing the user or consumer or buyer's power vis-a-vis a big vendor, you can start putting some requests and you want more information out of it. This is definitely something that could be a driver. This, again, if the link is that strong, I'm not sure. It depends on a lot of complicated contracts between a government procurer and a vendor. I think at the end of the day, there is similar to how any company that like starts engaging with open source, they start figuring out that the more you contribute, the more you get out of it. And I would say that there's more and more trends and like requests from both small and big companies wanting to understand this together. And not necessarily funding the research, but at least not blocking research by withholding data. And I see a general trend of people asking for this information. I notice it at least in the interest in our study. I think it's the only study EU-wide on the economic impact of open source that has been done in the last like 10, 12 years. A lot of things have happened to open source in the last 10, 12 years. There's quite the gap just there. And there are a lot of things we didn't look at. And there are a lot of things and a lot of research that would be very interesting for certain companies that being active in certain sectors, certain organizations being active in certain sectors that they want to ask for and try to figure out. And there's a lot of, I would say, a general embrace around this. I mean, look at the setting up of LF Research now. There's definitely more funding and effort to build up data sets. I know they're releasing their data from their World of Open Source study or research program, they're going to release all that data for people to engage with. So there are moves, but as always, we want to see things happen faster. But I'm quite hopeful in this area. I think the more we demand, the more there's just questions about this and the kind of companies realizing that having data that supports this innovation model, that it's good for the economy, that's pretty good to include in a sales slide or like a slide deck with a sales team. I was just going to follow up and say thank you for putting that together because having looked, I think it was the week before last, uh, the Linux Foundation and their new White House mobilization plan, one of the quotes that kind of came across me was like, it's a major challenge to objectively determining which open source software is actually critical because it's often considered a proprietary advantage by software distribution channels who are able to collect that data and think we've all kind of had a conversation about the value of that data, but more importantly, the value of what happens when that data is interpreted and conclusions are kind of driven from like a very actionable standpoint and that we can all kind of benefit from a little more openness when it comes to sharing that kind of fundamental basis for research to happen and for services to be developed as well, right? So I'm just really happy that conversation's happening. There's a funny thing that could be mentioned is that the data set that we worked on, and I know other economic studies like Frank Nagel at Harvard Business School also used this data set. 
this data was scraped from GitHub. So it's quite interesting in terms of openness. There's one thing, research finds a way. They usually figure out ways of getting to, to interesting data. But obviously, I don't see any point of anyone in the open source ecosystem to really put up hindrances around understanding it better. It should really benefit everyone. I'm going to be a bit of a cynical person in this conversation, maybe, where I question the boundaries that we're drawing in the conversation right now. So when I hear us talk about corporations and industry and platforms responsibility for sharing certain kinds of information, I'm curious as to like how and where we think about those different responsibilities and how those choices get made from the community level. So communities and projects that are choosing platforms which have closed features, who are making choices to integrate into certain ecosystems or products that actively close out their data. I think there's this tension that exists between us as researchers and us wanting to see transparency and openness and open source, as well as communities who are not controlled by corporations that are actively trying to either protect or maintain communication barriers, which allow folks who don't feel otherwise protected on the internet, clear channels of communication in ways that aren't necessarily transparent outside of the community. So I'm curious as to like how this group thinks about that tension between working in public protecting individuals' privacy and ability to work in public as well as not be a target of harassment or worse online? And how do we think about working openly and allowing that information to be transparent for folks who are making large-scale decisions? I'll answer. Uh, Just stop me if I'm answering the wrong part of the question here. But I think the one thing that should be said with the data that we have, if you look at commits, it is very anonymous in terms of what we worked with. Also, and this is one of the great challenges, there are no like very strong geographical links to exactly where somebody sits when they made a contribution to open source. And I think in that sense, having more openness around the data and activity at the macro level, like for the EU, 500 million people, and we could really have a bit more freedom in terms of the broad strokes. But it should be said that it gets a lot more difficult the more localized you go in terms of activity and the communities and the ecosystems. And I would agree. I mean, there are already challenges, great ones in the world of open source when it comes to that inclusiveness, encouraging more, be it committers, activity, people from more diverse backgrounds being part of this. If there's one thing from like an economic point of view that could be made as a conclusion is that there's a strong political reason to have more people engaged in open source because more open source is good. And putting any kind of cultural aspects within open source that excludes that, suddenly now we have almost like an economic cost on that straight up. We all knew it was there, but now we can actually make a point of the economic cost of not having an inclusive culture, be it within a community or a project or what have you. So I want to step back a bit. I really like this report and I really like the work that OFE does. Obviously, OFE doesn't just sit on its laurels and it's not over, right? You have more work to do and you have a lot more policies to set. We're seeing a lot of movements now in the EU in the past couple of years. One of the main examples I can think of is the sovereign tech fund coming out of Germany, which is really great. So it's the idea of like $10 million towards open source. I think that's the number. It's to look into what's critical for, say, the German economy or the EU economy. And how do we make sure that stuff keeps going without worrying about, say, 
game that cable's being shut off and then not being able to have things run. And that seems to me to be a really interesting movement towards action. So something worse is happening now, and it's really great. I'm curious, with OFE, now that you've released this report, now that you've had time to get your foot in the door and talk to the EC, what are you proposing that we do to make open source more sustainable? And how can we do that? This is the area that we have focused on, the kind of intersection of like what the government could do at the end of the day when you put forward public policies. Governments tend to be the kind of audience. And also, I want to add one thing on the Sovereign Tech Fund. Just two days ago, the budget was secured for the Center for Digital Sovereignty in Germany, which is an agency, quite the independent agency under the Ministry of the Interior, which by German officials I have spoken to have been described as the federal super OSPO, which has been given a budget together with the Sovereign Tech Fund and many other open source initiatives from the government of 50 million euros. So this is kind of public investments at a scale that we haven't seen from an EU member state ever into open source. So something is happening. And here, the question of like, also after COVID or at the end of COVID, hopefully, now the COVID recovery funds, as they're called, the kind of economic stimulus packages are starting to be dispersed into the economy. And a lot of it is earmarked for the digital transformation, which could mean a lot of different things. But this means essentially that right now there's a lot of public money floating around in the EU, which creates quite the opportunity because we also then see this need of realization among a lot of policymakers, not all, but more than we are used to at OFE, that there is a need to support parts of the open source ecosystem. What is really nice is that stability, security challenges of open source, we're not seeing a conclusion that we cannot work with open source. This is too risky. There's nothing like that. The conclusion we're seeing is one software, open source is a major, major part of it, has some challenges. We depend on it. We need to support it. How do we do it? So that was essentially the question you asked me. I think it's a very difficult one. I know you are all involved in these questions. We have kind of dealt with the research part. A lot more is needed. A lot more is happening quite fast, be it the different initiatives of just figuring out what source code you depend on. There are certain steps to this. I know the European Commission is looking into this. The German federal government is doing that. It's essentially figuring out, okay, what are the software packages that we depend on out there? Which one can we deem critical? But then comes that last question. Okay, but what do we do? I think one of the challenges here, which I bet you know a lot more about this than I do, but people's incentives for engaging in open source are very diverse and different. And just one model to either just pockets of money or just giving it to companies. It's not always the solution. How do you work with a community of volunteers and support and strengthen them? Money sometimes doesn't play too well with volunteerism. That is not always the solution. There are many other ways. We have the public money floating around and there is like a process now, I would say, of kind of policy innovation. Different countries are trying different models, slightly different ones. So there was a big study from the European Commission now just on a funding mechanism for open source that the public sector depends on. There, they're exploring different policy options. There are developments in Germany with the Sovereign Tech Fund, as you mentioned, but also similar discussions are happening with the experience of the Open Tech Fund in the US. Again, maybe we're at a process now where we just need to have more research on these questions. And I think it's moving fast. Unfortunately, that's kind of the slow answer. The risk is that, you know, sustainability challenges here and now. And there's also a willingness to invest here and now. 
The question is how much governments will dare to experiment with this. I think we need to encourage that willingness to try things, hopefully not break things. It's tough. What's interesting about having money floating around right now and having goodwill right now is that it doesn't always necessarily stay the same. I mean, Germany, for instance, had this whole shift towards open source in Munich in the early 2000s, if I remember correctly. And then it sort of crashed and burned when the party changed. We also saw the same thing in Brazil. We saw the same thing in South Africa. We've seen governments be like, yes, yeah, open source is the best. Let's support money in it. and then basically get burned because it's hard to invest money in open source and you may not get what you want. Which comes back to we need to have people who are smart and know what's going on in policy to advise politicians to figure out how to do their work correctly and how to do it in a way that doesn't destroy the ecosystem and helps out and doesn't make it harder in the future to invest. I guess that's not a question. I guess it's more of just... No, thing. but I can follow, follow up on this. And it's, it, cool. it should be said, we're a small team and we don't sit in meetings with the government representatives and tell them what to do. Also, we don't in any way pretend to represent open source. I don't know who could do that. What we do in terms of policy work is we try to create these links between experts. People are out in the field. People have done this for a while. People have tried and maybe failed. And we can bring those learnings and set up those meetings because the classic cathedral and bazaar metaphor works really well in policy as well. An organization or institution like the European Commission is very much a cathedral. And if we want to build links with the bazaar, that kind of translation service or just bring her together, sometimes just physically in the same room. At least now we're looking to doing that more again. Any kind of translation service is going to perhaps be even more important in the future. Open source is very big now. When you're very big, governments and both opportunities and goodwill, but also regulatory risk and things, unintended consequences from legislation, how much effort and time has the open source ecosystem put into investing in kind of a knowledge bank around open source and trade conflict? How will the breaking down on certain trade deals engage with the day-to-day of a developer in Europe trying to work with developers in the US or Asia or Africa. This is a relatively unexplored territory. So I think that going forward, these kind of translation mechanisms are going to be important. We probably have to grow a little bit. But the question, there are many of them, right? And that is just what has changed now is that many policymakers at very high levels are very interested and curious in what open source can do in terms of achieving policy goals. I mean, for a policymaker, open source in and of itself will never be a goal. They don't represent an open source ecosystem, but open source is a wonderful tool sometimes to do things fast and at scale. I mean, the story of the European COVID travel passes is a very interesting one in terms of what open source can lend when it comes to interoperability and rolling something out at a scale and at a speed never seen before in digital government. That interest is there. I think now... I would almost say that the challenge is to everyone involved in open source, be it as an individual developer, part of a community, or working at a very large company to start investing attention and energy into exchanging with governments. Because a lot of governments are also eager to start engaging directly, contributing to open source, being part of this ecosystem, because they realize that this is important to build their own capacity. There's a lot of value here. And I almost would say that now it's for the open source ecosystem to step up because when governments start to ask, what can you do to help us solve the like great grand challenges that we're facing? How can open source help to help us solve challenges around climate change, around 
over-dependence on certain vendors. With the challenge of COVID and like just fast responses, vaccine development, how can you engage in these things? Now that challenges on the open source ecosystem, I find to really step up, acknowledge how big open source is and dare to take on these big challenges and engage with them. I think that's where open source is now. We have the ears of the politicians, I would say. I love that you bring up the challenge that the same incentive models and the same models that drive either individuals or communities or cultures in the open source community is uniform. And understanding that policies impact people, communities, cultures in different ways and in ways that it's challenging for us to see from a top-down systems-wide level of understanding best practices going forward. Because I definitely heard from you, Astor, that there are many methods and many ways we should be considering when we're trying to understand how to encourage growth, long-term sustainability, and that now is a really great time for the open source community and for individuals to be able to address things like systemic inequity, long-term support maintenance, where and how there might be social systems that don't actively contribute to their long-term support, that it's not able for them to do their work because of ways that they are not supported by governments. And that does impact who gets to join certain economies and the kind of work that they do. And so it's exciting to hear this idea of connections and bringing people together as a way forward, as opposed to creating standards and requirements that might block out more people, but in fact, just bring people together. And a challenge there is that governments love standards, so specifications and clarity, right? And then also explaining that sometimes it's just not really compatible with this world. Maybe there's in some situations you have to find a compromise or a middle way. In some areas, maybe pushing back and saying, no, this is not the time nor the place. This is not how it should happen right now. We're not at the point of maturity in this specific instance to do this. At the same time, challenges around, let's say, sustainability and the security of yeah, what is called the big global software supply chain and all these geopolitical questions around it. There will be also a push from governments suddenly and probably very quickly to ask for certain things. The challenge here is that the broad open source world has kind of underinvested, if you want to call it that, or hasn't spent enough time on that kind of policy making. There's been a lot of policy activity and political activity around open source, but not necessarily for the long term. There are new challenges ahead, but also new opportunities, obviously, and areas where open source will really help. And just if you think about it, open source will be relevant politically for any challenge that is bigger than any organization, company, or even country. For any of those challenges, open source will have a very interesting part to play because there is where it does really well, maybe better than any other innovation or collaboration model at that scale. So I just wanted to kind of ask, and I'm conscious of time, this is a conversation that's currently happening and it's a conversation that we believe, and I do agree, that that governments want and need to have for their future and they have increasing kind of degree of clarity around what they want. But what I am wondering is how can we enable that conversation to happen effectively with such a kind of nebulous group? Like, what can we do or what should we consider when we are trying to kind of represent the views of open source as a community or a part of open source as an individual community? Like, how can we enable that conversation to happen more authentically and representatively? 
my hunch is that this could very nicely be driven by the governments themselves. So obviously it takes two sides to tango here. And while I love the volunteerism of advocacy in the open source world, having time and wanting to spend and be part of the political discussion, you don't end up with a representative group. Having demands from, let's say, the government side to make sure, no, well, we need to talk to more stakeholders, not just the ones that are being sent here. I mean, this goes to a lot of policy questions, but really demanding more. Similar in the way like governments fund consumer organizations, right, to have a seat at the table as well. Really setting certain demands from governments that they want to see diverse representation. And then also for an organization like us and others that work with open source translation services between open source stakeholders and governments and our party to take this very seriously. Because it's easy to sit in Brussels and work with policy every day. And you're, we're, as I said, kind of high up working with the social and economic part of the open source stack. It's important for us to remind ourselves that we need to have that connection to the developers who are out there, perhaps also those potential developers and participants, and not just developers, all the other uh, roles that you have in the open source ecosystem as well, be it like, like uh, documentation or whatever. But like all these groups, we need to always remind ourselves representation is hard and it requires effort, but we need to be ready to put in effort and put in time to make sure that we have. Otherwise, I mean, it's just like research. If we tell only half of the story in a policy discussion to governments about what they should do, we're probably not going to get the best outcome. Aster, thank you so much for coming on and for ringing a clarion call about just the use of open source in ecosystems, the impact of it, and that we all need to get involved and basically share more and think more about what we can do, think not what the government can do for us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We are running up on time, which is very unfortunate. I wish this could go on another three hours so I could actually get to grips with how to do a lot of the stuff that you're suggesting. But I want to know where people can follow your work and where they can follow you online. So if they want to keep listening, they can do so. Where can we find out more about OFE and you? Apart from like social media and Twitter, I think that if you're really interested in what's happening in EU policy and open source, we have the EU open source policy community list. You can find it on our website. I bet I can share a link somewhere with this recording. It's a group of around 300 people ranging from big, small companies, activists, representatives of governments coming together, sharing information, discussing the latest developments, et cetera, there. If you really want to be active around those things, join in. Don't be afraid of sending an email, ask questions. It's a fun discussion group that we've now run for several years. And we have calls every four weeks where people can join in and, and discuss and ask questions as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Listeners, if you want to follow Aster online, you could do so at AsterNC on Twitter as well. Aster, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. I'm just always amazed by how professional the work is that OFE does and how much I wish there were think tanks that were at the same level elsewhere in the world. So I just thank you again. That's the next step. Do that. Start one. I think that would be awesome. I think Sustain should do it. Listeners, if you agree, hit us up on the Sustain discourse or by email. That's more professional, whatever. Yes, I agree. Think tanks everywhere. Before I go off waxing poetic in my head, I want to make sure we have time for... Spotlight. Spotlight is a part of the show where we talk about something different than ourselves. Spotlight is where we highlight projects, people, places, things, and elephants, which have just helped us along our way. And basically, we feel like they should have more light shed on them. Traditionally, hosts go first. Amanda, what is your spotlight today? Sure. I love that we talked about data sets and open source starting off the conversation. My spotlight for today is a paper that was recently published by colleagues of mine at the University of Vermont. 
The short title of it is The Penumbra of Open Source, and it examines representativeness of centralized platforms when researching open source through large-scale sampling. So I will give a quick preview that centralized platforms, when examining all of open source, actually don't look the same as when you look at open source that's not on centralized platforms. So that is the um, paper I would recommend for today. I was waiting for that comment the entire podcast. I was like, when is she going to say that there's more than open source of GitHub? When is it going to happen? So thank you for that, Amanda. Ben Nichols, what is your spotlight today? My spotlight, they probably don't need any more attention because they do a good job with this, but it's the Linux Foundation's report on open source software security. It was published a week before last. And I just wanted to point out that Stream 8, one of the recommended kind of work streams, is entirely about gathering, sharing, publishing open data about open source software its usage, interdependency, authorship, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been reading that. You should take a look. There's a whole lot in it. And I imagine we'll be having that conversation in the future as well. Thank you very much. My spotlight today is a bit different. I was recently on a plane and I watched two films. One of them is called Grandma. The other one is called Blue Bayou. One is about basically how a desire to get an abortion influences a small family. And the other one is about how immigration practices have influenced 50,000 kids in the U.S. who have been adopted but may not be legally citizens and can still be deported by ICE. So if you're interested in policy ramifications outside of open source, these are two amazing films that I absolutely loved. So Blue Bayou and Grandma. Aster, what is your spotlight today? In some work that we had with the European Commission's Open Source Observatory, which is a website where they just shine light on public sector work with open source, I came across Find Shelter, which is a French group of developers that set up this communication hub for Ukrainian refugees that came to France. And it was just one of many examples of where the open source ecosystem got active. So on that level, and then at the same time, I want to give a shout out to Frank Nagel's new article in Brookings. Very interesting if you're American looking at policy recommendations for the US and what to do with open source. And it touches a lot on open source research and knowledge creation as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, do weigh into the conversation. You can hit us up at SustainOSS on Twitter. You can go to discourse.sustainoss.org to go to our online forum, sustainoss.org to read our report instead of open source from last year. You can also send an email to podcast at sustainoss.org if you're interested in talking directly to us, especially if you have guests. Thank you so much, Aster. It's been great having you on. We wish you the Thank best. You. Thank you. Take care.